It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. My guest is comedian Steve Byrne. He'll be headlining in the Comedy Works at the Plaza this Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, February 6th through the 8th at 9 p.m. For ticket information, go to plazahotelcasino.com. And for everything about Steve Byrne, and that's B-Y-R-N-E, go to stevebyrnelive.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at Steve Byrne Live. And Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Looking forward to it. I have decided that the one thing that is unusual about you in the world of comedians is something. Would you like to hear what it is? I've been waiting 45 years for this moment. (laughs) (laughs) In the world of comedy, and I've talked to a lot of comedians over the years, actually decades at this point, but the point is you have struck me or you strike me as, and this is now your appearance so much as who you are internally. So you'll, you'll see where I'm going with this in a moment. Okay. I'm, bu- I'm building it up as best I can, Steve. You are one of the very few comedians that I see as non-neurotic. Well, look, I completely agree with you. I think I, I know what you're going to here. The, the, <laughs> the entertainment world and the, uh, certainly the, the world filled with comedians that we, that we inhabit is filled with kind of neurotic, dark, sometimes incredibly negative but for some reason on stage things get contorted and twisted in a humorous way so people think that comedians by nature are quite jovial and on the up and i'd say for the most part that's kind of the opposite but i'm <laughs> one that i think my parents hugged me and <laughs> and i uh i think i have a pretty healthy head on my shoulders you do it and when i've seen you in performance you come across as a very normal guy who is funny which is unusual in today's comedy world, and probably has been unusual for a while, I, there's a few others that I can think of over the decades that come across that way. I won't bore people with the names of them all, but it, it's interesting because, as you say, your parents hugged you, which is also interesting because you have a Korean mother and an Irish father, and we'll talk about that in a moment. She's hugging you, and he's drinking at the same time, so at least that, <laughs> yeah, exactly. that, that's the rumor. I have another theory that it was really a Korean father and an Irish mother, but I don't know. We'll check that out later. So okay. <laughs> so you're, you're getting hugged by your folks. You had, I assume, a fairly normal upbringing. You had to choose at some point, among other things, which we will also talk about, including documentaries, but you had to choose a world of comedy. You have decided to become what, in essence, is an extremely challenging art, stand-up comedy. So when yeah. did you first realize you wanted to go down that path? Well, I think some people... I think some people pursue a destiny, and then sometimes I think a destiny is laid right in front of you. You know, and I think that was the situation for me. I always, you know, when I was a kid, I always dabbled in acting classes, and, you know, I I went to Kent State, and I studied theater. And when I moved to New York City, my father is originally from there, so he got transferred back there for his job before he retired. And I, I reached out to him when I finished up college, and I said, hey, can I just crash on your couch and experience New York City before I get on with my life and really figure things out? And he said, of course. So the first day I showed up, I said to my folks, I'm not coming home till I get a job. I started on, I think, 86th and Broadway and Ping 
pong my way down Broadway into every restaurant, every shop that I could find to just get a shit job, just anything. And the last place I walked into was 50th and Broadway. I walked into this venue. I said, I'm looking for a job. The manager happened to be standing there. He said, what do you want to do? I said, I'll do anything. And he said, fill this out, come back tomorrow. And that place was Caroline's Comedy Club. And I was sweeping floors, taking reservations, and seven days a week watching the best comics in New York City and touring come through that club and was just blown away. And I just kept thinking, that looks like fun. I want to try that at some point. And four months later, I went up at Stand Up New York on the Upper West Side, and I did stand up. And I always say the first time I did stand-up was like the first time I had sex. It was quick. I cried immediately afterwards, and I couldn't <laughs> wait to do it again. So it was all, all those things, and it was just, uh, I was just hooked right after that. Now, I have a theory that neurosis is contagious, yet you are in this comedy club sweeping floors and doing all this stuff exposed over years to some of the top comedians, and yet you didn't pick up that neurosis. So I, I have to go back to that again because it does intrigue me. How did you know what to avoid as far as pitfalls and, let's say, to be funny but not necessarily to be tortured? Well, I don't think, you know, I don't think you can map that out. I think you either are or you're not. And I think most of, from what I've learned over the 23 years I've been doing this, is a lot of this stems from our childhoods, you know, uh, our upbringings. And fortunately for me, I had a pretty positive upbringing, so I think the the kind of blemish on me is being of mixed race. And I think just trying to find identity over the years, that is probably subconsciously the reason why I developed a sense of humor and why I liked to explore that certainly in the early years of my standup. And it's kind of coming full circle with this new hour that I'll be filming at some point this year, really, really just kind of lifting the rocks and finding the worms underneath and the bugs and and not not going dark, but just really, really being a lot more vulnerable and exploring that. So for me, it's not it's not something that was negative by any means. I think when you're a young kid and you get made fun of, the thing that kids make fun of you for ends up becoming kind of your superpower when you get a little older because you learn to not take that thing for granted and um, and and twist things around. It's just interesting because, as you say, you had supportive parents. You did get teased because of the mixed aspect of your lineage, and yet you took it, and that's where you developed a sense of humor. Other comedians, whether they had supportive parents or not, seem to have had a neurosis in their lives and use humor as a way of keeping that neurosis somewhat in check. So I guess I'm, I don't want to get too philosophical or intellectual, but it just fascinates me that you have become a comedian, you're very funny, and yet you don't seem to have that tortured aspect to you. No, I don't, I, I don't, I don't feel tortured. If anything, I, you know, especially as I get older, the, the only aspect of the job I don't like now is, the only thing that tortures me now is, is going on the road, because it's the other 23 hours on the road that's kind of a bummer, but the one hour that you're on stage or the two hours on a Friday or Saturday, that's kind of like why I continue to do this is because you're putting pen to paper, you're executing a thought or an ironic twist on stage, and the end result hopefully is laughter. And so it's the challenge of always constantly creating and staying relevant and creating material that that will provoke people. And, and the, the thing that's 
that's kind of tough these days is that to stay relevant is so difficult now with the advent and and you know appreciation of social media and the influx of constant hour specials going you know just a few years ago you could you could do an hour special and tour for that for two years and nowadays it's like you could have an hour special and for six months it could be relevant and then it kind of dips and disappears in the ether so for me the only thing that that I, it, the torture is not for me anything within my mental state or anything it's just it's keeping up with the uh with the ever-changing landscape of, of being a stand-up comedian it's almost what have you done for me lately in other words you do a, a tv show and and as you said it used to be you could tour on it for a year you know for a long time and then all of a sudden sure. it's now it's a shortened time span what have you done for us lately and then you have to create another one and another one so that can get a little exhausting i think you are guilty of a little whining and i'll explain what i mean by that sure. uh, a lot of people that tour on the road, and trust me, a lot of guests have talked about that, exactly as you stated it. In other words, the 23 hours of the travel and checking in and doing all that, and then the one hour on stage or two hours on stage, that's where you really enjoy it. But you don't really have to travel with a lot of stuff. Some of these musicians and performers have to travel with props or instruments or things, whereas as a stand-up comedian, you can just go and hop on a plane and show up somewhere and sure. do the act. Yeah, you know, look, it could be a lot worse if I was a musician or if I was in a band and, you know, the overhead and all those, the internal fighting that happens with every band, you know, um, it, it is, it's, you know, but my lot in life is to just be, you know, it's a profession of solitude. You're always by yourself. So there's a give and take with everything. You know, you're, you don't have the camaraderie. You don't have the leaning on other people. You, there's, you know, there's give and take and a, a a double-edged sword to, to all aspects of being in entertainment, as with any occupation, you know, but I think with any occupation, as you go on and you grow older, there are times where you take the occupation for granted and the fact that, you know, we all have aspirations in the entertainment field, and some of them are obviously extremely grand. Everybody wants the big cheese, and very few people get invited into that party. But I think as you go on, it's you got to remember why you got in this in the first place, and and when I go back to New York City and I'm a regular at the Comedy Cellar, I, I'm here in L.A. and, like, tonight I'll be going to the Comedy Store, you know, you really think about those two clubs. They're so iconic. They, they let in very few comedians, and so many comics across the country have, have auditioned and vied to try to be a part of that community. And there's times where I drive home from the Comedy Store in Los Angeles, and I think, my God, you know, I, I, I'm a regular at two of the best clubs in the country as a stand-up comedian, I'm, you know, a part of that community, and I get to work with some of the best in the world nightly in an art form that was, I believe, created. You know, storytelling is is international, but but the art of stand-up comedy, I believe, started here. So the fact that I get to work in two of the best clubs in the country, sometimes you, you, you should just, you know, <laughs> take a breather and go, look what you get to do for a living. This is pretty awesome. Absolutely. I withdraw my whining comment because you you actually see the balance in your life between the positive and the, the negative. I agree with you on the road situation, but just because even if you're traveling by yourself, it can get lonely and you almost have to take a Zen-like approach to travel so you can get through it. Maybe spend the time writing new material or reading or whatever you have to do. Sure. I mean, look, the, the suitcase gets a little heavier every year, right? right. I got two kids. I got the wife. And you want to spend a lot more time with them, but you got to keep the lights on. And you know, there was a period of time where I was I was just kind of 
you know, a satellite in orbit. And I was in Texas, and I did a show. There was a young man with his mother in front. And, you know, you do crowd work, you grease the wheels, you get the audience to know who you are. And I was talking to them, and I just kind of pounded this kid in a fun way and made him part of the show and got him a drink during the set. And afterwards, I got talking to him and his mother, and his mother let me know that he had, since the age, I think, of six, he's had seven or eight open-heart surgeries since he was a young child. And I couldn't imagine as a parent myself what this mother must have been going through. And then obviously for the kid uh, to, to go through all that, and the mom said, you know, he's never brought it up to his friends. He's never mentioned it. He just kind of keeps it to himself, and he's very humble in terms of the adversity he's overcome. And on top of that, when I was talking to him, he said, you know, this was a night I just wanted to get out and I just wanted to laugh. So thank you for making me laugh. And it was one of those moments where all of a sudden you got a full tank yeah, again, you know. You're mm -hmm. like, this is why I do it. You know, yep. when you're younger, you do it for yourself, for ego and insecurity and, you know, neuroses. But as you get older, you realize that ultimately you're doing this for the audience, for people that are going through something, for people that generally just want to escape and get a laugh and they're tired of hearing about politics and how bad their life sucks and Twitter and Facebook and all that other horseshit. So, so it was a nice recalibration. It's the gift of laughter, in essence. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you can get instant feedback from members of your audience, in this case, this kid and the mother, that it's got to fill you with a, an awareness of the power of what you do. Yeah, that was absolutely something that, again, like I said, just recalibrated my, my thought process and gave me inspiration. I think, you know, it's, uh, it's one of those God-given moments where you, you get to say to yourself, you know, don't take this for granted. Look what you get to do for a living fucking mouth and get up on stage and keep writing some jokes. Well, let's take a break. My guest, comedian Steve Byrne, he'll be headlining in the Comedy Works at the Plaza this Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, February 6th through the 8th at 9 p.m. For ticket information, you go to plazahotelcasino.com. And for everything about Steve Byrne, you go to stevebyrnelive.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at stevebyrnelive. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more Talk About Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment. There's something new at the Neon Museum. The emerging technology of light mapping brings old signs back to life. Forgotten artifacts of our past that once blazed in the Las Vegas night are reanimated in a dazzling immersion of sight and sound. You've never seen anything like it because there's never been anything like it. Brilliant, a Neon Museum experience. Performances nightly. Join the experience now at neonmuseum.org. Now let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Welcome back. I'm talking with comedian Steve Byrne. He'll be headlining in the Comedy Works at the Plaza this Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, February 6th through the 8th at 9 p.m. For ticket information, go to plazahotelcasino.com. And for everything about Steve Byrne, that's B-Y-R-N-E, Steve Byrne, go to stevebyrnelive.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at Steve Byrne Live. And Steve, when you were coming up, because as I mentioned in the, in the opening, that you're unique in that you're not the typical neurotic comedian, was there a model for you coming up through the ranks, so to speak, if there is the ranks of comedy? It almost sounds like a 
the military where you start out as a private and then you become a sergeant and et cetera. I have a feeling that there's more chaos than organization in the comedy world, but okay, we'll go with ranks of the comedy world. Anyway, sure. uh, who is it that you look to for inspiration or even some modeling? Well, it's definitely a community that polices itself. It is, uh, <laughs> it's definitely the Wild West, but <laughs> you know, respect is earned and not given. And especially at the comedy cellar, you know, you've got to kind of earn your place. And if you don't make people laugh those 15 minutes that you're on stage, um, you're out of the club. And I saw people kind of fall by the wayside through my years. So it was always just kind of earning your, your place in that club, which is uh, at the time and certainly is now for sure more relevant than it's ever been. You know, I think once you kind of hold your own there, then you get to experience the kind of totem pole and echelons of all the different experiences. When I was at the Comedy Cellar, you know, Colin Quinn was the guy that kind of held court. He's been through everything. He's done so much. He's constantly writing. He's very prolific. But on top of that, he's an extremely nice guy. And I think because he was so respected at the at the table, quote-unquote, at the, at the Comedy Cellar, that kind of permeated and, and went down the line. Now, certainly there's... <laughs> there's there's guys like when I was there, it was Patrice O'Neill and Jim Norton and Rich Voss and Greg Giraldo. And, you know, the shitting on each other used to get so negative at times that there were times where I was just like, I, I just can't be around this negativity. I got to get up and walk away and just go hang out at the bar and wait till I'm on stage. So I think there was always like a give and take with the positivity that I that I believe I, I have within myself and then not not falling into the darkness at the comedy cellar, right, you know, right. and stepping away from that. And, um, you know, in terms of, like, looking up to people, it was certainly Colin Quinn. I mean, he, he was somebody that that I looked up to in terms of his prolific writing. Greg Giraldo, same thing. Uh, Bill Burr, if I was a freshman in high school, I guess he'd be a sophomore. So I came in a little bit after him, but he was somebody I looked up to um, from the very beginning, and we used to hang out a lot in our New York City days. And, uh, not as much now because we're in two different tax brackets. But, um, <laughs> but Bill is certainly somebody that from the minute I saw him, he absolutely had his voice down pat. He's the same way off stage as he is on stage. And, that, and there's some guys that are just like that, and there's other guys like myself that I think are a little more introspective off stage. But once you get on stage, it's like that's when it all comes out. So I kind of save it for the stage, whereas Bill's just, Bill's just Bill, you know. Those <laughs> are some names that I think um, I saw that – that kind of inspired me. I thought the comedy fraternity frowned on the financial discrimination issue. So now that Bill Burr is wealthy and he's in a different bracket than you, I thought he should, I think he should still talk to you and meet with you. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I just, uh, I just saw him just two weeks ago. There you go. I figured that was the case. It, the way you described working at the club in the sense that if you weren't funny in that 15 minutes, you're out of the club. It, it's a very Darwinist theory or a Darwinist experience. I mean, that's why you see there's woke generation of kids coming up and giving flack to certain bookers or comedy clubs saying, why is there more representation from women? Why is there more representation from Asians, Latinos, blacks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, it's like at the end of the day, yeah, I, I agree. You do want a little flavor of life of everybody represented up there. But at the same time, it's like, we'll do the work. You know, if they're good enough, they'll be passed. If they're, people aren't shutting people out of stand-up comedy because they're Latino or Asian or gay or trans or whatever the case may be. It's like 
they're probably just not good enough. There aren't good Latin comics. There aren't good Asian comics. I'm just saying that if you want to see more, then go support them. Follow them on Twitter because the industry does look at those numbers. And, and hopefully if these people, whoever the individual is, is generating enough ticket sales or clout or whatever, they're going to be undeniable. And I think usually when you're that talented and you're, you know, the, the bookers see you or the managers see you and your talent is undeniably good to be on the same lineup, then you'll be part of it. So it's also like culturally who's, who's doing this, who's going out and making a go of this. And, you know, a lot of stand-up comics you see are, you know, usually white Jewish guys because they're kind of the pioneers of the Borscht Belt, of the Catskills, of the New York comedy scene, and so on and so forth. So I think that inherently there's a lot of Jewish folks uh, especially males that are involved in comedy, and then with the advent of Joan Rivers, that was inspiration for young Jewish women. And then you see the advent of Sarah Silverman and Amy Schumer, and uh, you know you go on and on. So I think that culturally, it's it's a part of certain races or religions or whatever it might be. But but uh, I think there is a wall that's breaking down where you're seeing more Asian representation, you're seeing more Latino representation, and et cetera, et cetera, because I think kids are giving it a try, and, and God bless them for doing it. Is it also, as you alluded to earlier, the proof is in the pudding, to use a great cliche, in that you can, it doesn't matter what your color is or your ethnicity or anything else or your sexual orientation. If you're funny, you're funny, and you're going to have people react, and you're going to get gigs. If you're not funny, it's not going to happen. Sure, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, if your resume is not speaking for itself, then... Maybe you ought to find something else to do, you know? I mean, you can only do it so long without wondering why is it not breaking for me. So, um, and believe me, I, I think every comic is in that situation at some point in their life. Uh, you know, and you've got to constantly reinvent yourself and think about how you're going to, you know, stay relevant. And as you get older, I think it gets more and more difficult when you're young you're a blank slate but as you get into your you know right now i'm 45 it's like do i talk about my wife and kids do i want to be that vulnerable or that open or you know there's certain channels you could go down and then it's like do i start to be cleaner when i'm older and you know i think there's a lot of decisions to be made because those pivots throughout the course of your career are very instrumental in terms of who's going to pay to come see you and why would they invest in an hour special for you so you know you got to be your be your best advocate you got to be your own voice you got to tell your own truth but you also got to be thinking what what am i saying that's resonate that's going to ultimately hopefully resonate with people that will make a difference and make them laugh that's very insightful you also in addition to performing stand-up comedy you get involved in documentaries as well i know you did one on the amazing jonathan who's been on the show as well and he's an interesting character and has been for a long time. How did you get involved with that project? Well, uh, Jonathan was one of the first guys I ever opened for on the road. Um, when I was in New York City, occasionally I'd get to leave the city and go to a, a road club, and I went to a, a club called Charlie Goodnights in North Carolina, and I was booked there for two weeks back-to-back to make it profitable. And the first week was Brian Regan, and the second week was The Amazing Jonathan. And I got along with Jonathan. I really got along with his road manager, Joel Osborne, and I just saw this really unorthodox relationship between two men that on paper should never be in each other's lives. Joel's 
a teetotaler, just a very zen kind of kid. And Jonathan's fucking crazy. He's, <laughs> he's a self-admitted drug addict, uh, but he's also one of the most talented comics I've ever seen in my life. And his live show is one of the most entertaining I've seen in the 23 years I've been doing this. So, so over the years, anytime I came to L.A. or Vegas, I'd always hit up Jonathan, and Joel would be right there. And Joel and I just kind of clicked because of our love of Britpop and Oasis. And um, so I, I would just hang out with these guys all the time. And so when Jonathan retired from comedy, I was heartbroken like everybody else due to his uh, health condition and, and learning he, he's got a terminal diagnosis. When he outlived expectations, said, I'm going to make a return to the stage, I thought that would make a great film. I'd love to see that. And I just called him up and I said, hey, could I, could I film you and do a documentary? He said, absolutely. So that's what I did. I, I, I'd never done a film. I knew structure because at the time I was writing a feature film that I ended up writing and directing that'll come out in 2020. So due to that, I knew structure. And so I knew the structure I wanted to tell due to Jonathan and Joel's relationship. Jonathan is the face of the film, but Joel Osborne and their relationship is the heart of the film. And um, yeah, we, we finished, wrapped it up, put it up on YouTube with Bill Burr's, uh, Bill Burr, his YouTube channel, All Things Comedy. And it's gotten like 625,000 views in just a few months and 19,000 likes, 200 dislikes. I think those are pretty good numbers, so pretty proud of it and really happy that Joel and Jonathan are both proud of it, too. Absolutely. Did you use a crude or did you shoot it yourself? How did you, how did you make it work? Uh, it's just kind of a run-and-gun operation, so you get two or three good cameras, you go out, you film your interviews, you go to Detroit, you get all the archival footage and you uh, comb through all that and... <laughs> And you cobble it together. And, yeah, I, I, I pretty much edited this thing in my garage and worked with a good friend of mine, Jason Dallas, who's my cameraman and editor. And then we polished it off with Brian Getz, who's a real, really accomplished film editor. And um, he, you know, made it look great. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're really happy with it. It was, it was an arduous process, but it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of sweat equity. But, but you know, it was just um, I, I sunk money into it. I'll never see it back. But... It was, I learned so much from doing it, and I really, really appreciate Jonathan and Joel being so open with their lives and letting me in and get to tell their story. And I think from your perspective, it's a story that needed to be told, which is why you devoted all that time and energy and resources to it. Yeah, I mean, you got this guy who is very flawed, but the talent exceeds the flaws, right? And he's touring the world. He's international. He's a Vegas headliner. He is part of the reason why downtown Las Vegas started blossoming due to his residency at the Nugget and drawing a younger crowd down there back, back in the day. And, you know, as he's touring, he meets this 12-year-old kid, Joel Osborne, and year after year, he keeps going back to Australia. And this kid's a little older, but he's backstage waiting to get an autograph. And Jonathan always obliges and starts kind of taking him under his wing. And at 18, invites this kid to be his road manager. And now you got an 18-year-old kid from another continent in charge of a drug addict in Las Vegas. <laughs> what a <laughs> so story. Whole <laughs> season through drug addiction, uh, lost opportunities, suicide attempt, uh, the perils of, of being in Las Vegas and cocktail waitresses, all those things, and finally gets Jonathan in a great place in his life to say, you know what, you're good now. I'm going to go to Australia. I learned all I could from you. I'm going to be a comedian on my, on my own right. Joel goes back, becomes a comedian. Jonathan is sick, announces he's going to come back to stage, and then Joel comes back to open for him. So 
so it all kind of came full circle, and I just saw the whole film mapped out right in front of my very eyes within the first two minutes I talked to them. And you were able to juggle that with stand-up comedy and your family as well, so you're balancing these three items at the same time. Well, I did that along with doing this feature film. It's called The Opening Act. So I was doing the documentary while I was writing and in pre-production of uh, the feature film. And that that film is, is coming out in 2020. It was produced by Vince Vaughn, and it's all about my early years in stand-up encapsulated within four days. So it's really a film about a young comic's very first time ever going on the road. So the whole first half of the film is romanticism, optimism, and partying of hanging out with the feature act. And the back half of the film is all the reality, isolation, sobriety, and um, and the exposure to to the lifestyle that will happen to you later on in life by hanging out with a road-weary veteran headliner. And <laughs> yes. Jimmy O. Yang from Crazy Rich Asians plays a young version of me. Alex Moffer from Saturday Night Live plays the feature act. And Cedric the Entertainer plays the headliner. That's great. Well, look for it on, on Steve's website as to when it will come out, because you don't know exactly when yet in, in 2020. That's right. Yeah, we just had our, our buyer screening, so we're going to find out within the next probably two or three months where it will live and when, when it will be available, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, great. Well, you can find that out on Steve's website. Steve, thanks for being on the show, and I think people get a sense of you from this conversation and come see you at the Comedy Works. So my guest has been comedian Steve Byrne. He'll be headlining in the Comedy Works at the Plaza this Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, February 6th through the 8th at 9 p.m. For ticket information, go to Plaza Hotel Casino. Dot com And for everything about Steve Byrne, go to stevebyrnelive.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at stevebyrnelive. Steve, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Be my